Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I have a repeat guest with me, Dr. David Benatar. He is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And today we're going to focus on his latest book, The Fall of the University of Cape Town, Africa's Leading University in Decline. So, Dr. Benatar, it's always a pleasure to have you on. So, thank you so much for coming on the show again. My pleasure and lovely to be back with you. So, I mean, my first question would be, could you just give us um, a general view of how things started going downhill at the University of Cape Town and perhaps some of the main events? It's always hard to pinpoint exactly where a change like this occurs. I suspect that there are going to be a variety of threads that feed together and bring about the change. But it does seem to me that there was a turning point in 2015 mm -hmm. when one undergraduate student began a protest to have the statue of Cecil John Rhodes removed from the campus. And I should say that on the question of statue removals, I'm open-minded, and I think that some statues should be removed, others shouldn't, and I think there's room for reasoned discussion about which ones should be and which ones should not be removed. Uh, but the University of Cape Town did that process. Uh, very hastily, within a month, they removed that statue. And that, that quietened the students for a while, but later that year, protests began nationally and also at the University of Cape Town ostensibly to have the fees removed, fees for tertiary education removed. But a string of other demands uh, came in the wake of that one. And at this point, the protests turned from ordinary legal and appropriate protests into illegal and criminal behavior. And the University of, Capitu the University of Cape Town's leadership really capitulated to these protests and to the criminality and illegality. And I believe that that set a new tone within the university. So although those protests are now more or less a thing of the past, there is now a new tone, environment, and it's a deeply toxic one. Could you be a little bit more specific about the ways students acted illegally? Yes, they engaged in arson, in intimidation, uh, assault. Uh, they ruined university property in other ways as well, like string human excrement. Uh, so there were a variety of criminal activities that took place. Mm -hmm. um, just to put this into perspective, were there ever students or faculty, for example, manifesting against these more extreme and violent actions or not at all? Almost nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not to say that there was not sentiment against what was going on. Uh, but there was, I think, one counter-protest of a peaceful kind, and that itself was criticized heavily. And then in terms of other kinds of protest and, and um, reaction, very little, and almost none of it coordinated. Most people were intimidated into silence, uh, and uh, so there was just very little uh, pushback. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, this started with the students and was mostly something done by the students or did it have the participation of professors, administrators or someone like that? There were certainly staff members that were coming out in support of the students. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they, I'm not saying that the staff members themselves were engaged in criminal activity, but they were certainly aiding and abetting those who were. Mm -hmm. And uh, how did faculty and, uh, and administration deal with the, uh, with the situation here? Well, the administrators were really in control in the sense that they were dictating the university's response. But that response was not one of control. It was one of capitulation. So they, were, they kept drawing lines and saying, you can't cross this line. But then the students would cross that line and then they would just draw another line. And so there were really no proper repercussions for anybody who engaged in criminal activity. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I would like to ask you specifically about that, because in the book, at a certain point, 
you talk about a culture of capitulation at UCT. So uh, what does that mean and in what does that uh, what that translates into exactly? Well, what it means is that instead of upholding the law in a democracy, what they did is they allowed people to trample all over the law and over the rights of other people uh, without holding the people who did that to account. Now, I'm all in favor of protest that recognizes the rights of other people. If you dislike a law, you dislike a policy and you want to protest against it, that is entirely reasonable. And uh, there ought to be place for that kind of activity. Uh, but when you start violating the rights of other people, then you've overstepped the mark. And the university did not recognize that. And so what it did is it, it, it gave in to these, uh, to these illegal and criminal activities. And what that meant was that the rights of other people were being trampled upon. People were subject to intimidation. In some cases, they were subject to assault. Uh, there were, as I say, cases of arson. Uh, a, a couple of university vehicles were put on fire. The vice chancellor's office was firebombed. There were a variety of artworks that were burnt. Uh, so this is really outrageous behavior. This is not the way you conduct yourself in uh, in a liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us more about what were the main demands made by the students? You mentioned fees, for example. Uh, what else? Well, fees must fall was the successor to roads must fall. Uh, but then under the umbrella of fees must fall were a range of other demands. Uh, central to those was so-called decolonization of the university. Another key word that's used in South Africa, another slogan is the word transformation. Uh, and so there were lots of demands to that effect, but then a whole array of uh, smaller demands and those demands just kept growing. Uh, things like uh, the availability of free sanitary products in, in, the, in the bathrooms or toilets. So there were big things and then there were little things, relatively little things. Now, mm -hmm. under the decolonization and transformation, uh, they wanted what they called free decolonial quality education. But terms like decolonization and transformation were never really defined. And when one would push them on that and ask, well, what do you mean by these terms? You still wouldn't get a definition. So uh, it, there were sort of very open-ended demands and it was hard to know exactly what would constitute meeting them. And so the university would just keep giving in on individual occasions and it was almost an insatiable beast. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about transformation and the decolonization, this is a topic or two topics that you spend some time in the book talking about. Do what do they really mean, or what do you say? Would you say they mean? Well, this is the problem: is I don't know what they mean, and I've tried to interrogate what somebody might mean by those terms. I think the way they're actually used is as slogans. So, if there's something that you don't like, you don't have to articulate what it is you don't like. You just say you want decolonization and transformation. Um, now. I mean, there are a range of things that have gone under the name of decolonization. So people say they want the curriculum changed. But how do you want the curriculum changed and in what ways? One of the examples that I give in the book, and you can actually view this on YouTube, is a student who wanted to decolonize science. And what that meant, uh, she said, was getting rid of ideas like gravity, which she took to be Western constructs, and that we now create science from the ground up in an African way. Now. Is that really what you mean by decolonization? If that's what you mean by decolonization, you may as well close down the university as an act of decolonization. I'm sure it's not the case that everybody had as extreme a view as that. Uh, but I think if you are going to be calling for things like decolonization and transformation, then you need to be clear about what you mean by those terms. So we know what it is that we uh, are asked to be, to be doing. Mm -hmm. In terms of the demands made by the students in general, do you think that at least some of them would have been legitimate or could have been legitimate demands if they had been done through some other means? Well, there's a difference between uh, a legitimate demand uh, and, uh, and a reasonable demand. In other words, uh, if you are 
espousing a view and you're calling for particular action and you're doing it within the confines of the law in a liberal democracy. I'm not speaking now about societies where you can't bring about change uh, through democratic and, and liberal means, but in a liberal democracy, which is what we substantially still are, uh, if you are going to not bring about your change through the uh, through the means that are available to you and you're going to engage in illegality, then there's something sort of illegitimate about your actual means. Now, this that's different from the substance of what you're asking for. And I think that if you're going to ask for something, then you need to be able to articulate what it is that you're asking for, and then we can engage in a process of evaluation. And so one of the things that's very frustrating for me is uh, that that was never really articulated. So, for example, in the case of the removal of artworks, one of the objections to the artworks was that, taken as a whole, they represented uh, Africans, black Africans, in a kind of demeaning way. That was the argument that was made. But if you look at the artworks that were actually removed, they include many that don't fit into that categorization. In fact, if anything, they were laudatory. One example was a, a photograph of Nelson Mandela sitting with his feet up in a plush environment, looked like his home, and reading the Sunday newspaper. Now, there's nothing demeaning about that photograph. He was clearly, you can see from his uh, from his facial expression, this wasn't a candid picture taken of him that he was unaware of. Uh, this was a picture that he had obviously posed for or was clearly aware of. There's nothing demeaning about that photograph, and yet it was uh, removed from the uh, from the from the walls. So the the ostensible objection and what was actually going on didn't align. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, would you like to add something else or? Oh, no, sorry. I mean, that's just an example of the piles of examples. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yes, and to get into a very specific one, uh, what are your views when it comes to free tertiary education since uh, we were talking about fees a mm. few minutes ago? I don't have an a priori view on that. I think it depends on where you are and what the society can afford. I'm not convinced it's a good idea in South Africa. We are not a wealthy society, and we have difficulty meeting quite important basic needs of people. And my worry is that if tertiary education is free, uh, and free for everybody, that effectively what you have is the poor subsidizing the rich, the worse off subsidizing the better off. It's an elite of society that has the privilege of going to a university in South Africa. These are relatively privileged people, whatever their racial demographic might be. Uh, and if it's free, it's effectively being funded through taxes. Now, some of that is income tax, but some of it is sales tax of various kinds, what we call VAT, value-added tax. Uh, and I don't think that's fair. So I, I'm not unmindful of the fact that there is a band of students who have too many resources to qualify for the subsidization that is provided by the state and by the universities, but who are not rich enough to actually pay for the university fees themselves. I'm aware of that band, what's sometimes called here the missing middle. And I do think that there's a need to address that kind of concern. But it's not clear to me that just dropping fees is removing fees is the way to go there. There may be more sensible, targeted and fair ways of addressing that sector. Mm -hmm. But uh, this position of yours applies specifically in the context of South Africa. Of course, I don't want to be unfair here and ask you about education systems from other countries because you, you might not have enough knowledge about that. But uh, I mean, the answer you gave me is applied specifically to the context of South Africa, correct? Yes, there are countries I know that do provide free tertiary education. As far as I know, those are countries that are better endowed, they have more resources, and they are able, in addition, to provide other social support for people who are much worse off. And so I'm certainly not criticizing those societies for doing what they do. I would have to make evaluations on a case-by-case -case basis. But we are not a first world country in that way. We, are not, we do not have the resources that those other countries have. Mm -hmm. In terms of the demands made uh, when it comes to the contents that get taught at university, the curricula, 
uh, were these demands, uh, I mean, did they go through? Did the curricula or some of the curricula change? Definitely. Uh, there's definitely been change, but it is brought about in a variety of ways. Some of it is the result of protests and objections that are raised, but some of it is a result of uh, changes in staff and people getting on board. And also, once you've got this climate where people are expecting uh, certain things taught and taught in certain ways, then there's going to be a selectivity in your hiring process that uh, guides people towards that outcome because people who have different views about what to include in the curriculum are less likely to be hired. Uh, and then the people who are already employed in the institution, if they want to remain uh, on, on the right side, as it were, of the institution and of students, are going to, uh, going to capitulate to the demands. So again, to emphasize, I'm not opposed to reconsidering curricula and thinking about ways in which they can be improved, but I would like to see that brought about via a rational process of deliberation rather than people making these changes under the th threats of various kinds. Right. Uh, one of the claims made by some of these students is that sometimes education can be violent. Do you agree with this? You, are, you making, are you making an observation that they are claiming that a particular curriculum could be violent? Uh, yes. Yes. Yes, I've, I've heard that argument. I think this is one of the ways in which this word violence is misused. And in fact, there's the, the great ironies here because they describe curricula and, uh, and ideas that they don't like as violent. And they want to object to those. But they're not really violent. They're not violent in any conventional sense of the word violence. Whereas the activities that we, that we engaged in to protest this were in fact literally violent. People were assaulted, people were, uh, uh, things were burnt. Um, so th this is actual violence that's taking place as a response to what at the very most is metaphorical violence, but may not be violence at all. And so this is, I think, one of the dangers of using words like that inaccurately and inappropriately, is once you describe an idea you don't like as a violent idea, well, that now is going to be invoked as part of a justification for your returning in kind with actual violence. I think we need to be careful in how we use words because things do rest on, on words and on, them, and on their meanings. Mm -hmm. So just one more question about the effects on curricula at uh, UCT. Has, has this had an effect on how philosophy specifically is taught there? Yes, it, it has. Uh, people are clearly feeling under pressure to revise the curriculum in the way that looks more trendy, given the current views. Getting into a more general question, what would you say is the role of universities? Because I think this is one of the questions that comes to the forefront when we're discussing uh, specifically the case of, of UCT and perhaps other universities around the globe where these kinds of demands have been made? Well, I think that universities are fundamentally places of research and teaching. So scholars are meant to be engaging in research in their disciplinary areas, sometimes collaborating with people in other disciplines as well. Uh, but that's all the research area. And then they're engaged in teaching a new generation of scholars, but also people who will uh, enter the society more generally and perform a range of activities there, some professional activities, some other activities. And uh, central to both these, both to teaching and to research, uh, are a range of virtues. And they include things like open-mindedness to different ideas, uh, the use of reason and evidence for, uh, for reaching conclusions, uh, there are principles like freedom of expression, which are essential because if certain ideas are closed down before they can even be discussed, uh, then you may be passing up the opportunity to, uh, to gain some knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise have gained. And so I think that these are really the central principles and activities of, uh, of a university. Mm -hmm. Related to that, how important would you say, and also, perhaps, how would you define 
academic, define academic freedom? Well, there are a variety of ways of understanding academic freedom. The interesting thing is that during the apartheid era, an influential vice chancellor and principal of the University of Cape Town, T.B. Davey, understood academic freedom as the freedom of the university to decide who would teach, who would be taught, what would be taught, and how it would be taught. Now, obviously, he was working with an environment in which the threats to academic freedom were coming from outside the university, uh, from the state. Uh, the state was seeking to impose racial segregation on the university to determine uh, the race of students who could attend particular universities, the race of the people who could teach, putting pressure on what may be taught. And uh, Dr. Davy was resisting that. I think that that conception of academic freedom uh, has certain merits within that environment where you are looking at external threats. But we're living in a somewhat changed environment now. It's not that there are no threats from the state. I think there are threats from the state. But there are also internal threats to academic freedom. And so sometimes what goes on is you get some sectors of the university that are putting pressure on other sectors of the university to teach things in a certain way or to teach certain things. And uh, I think that that can be that can be problematic. Not all the threats to academic freedom are going to come from outside. Now, freedom of expression is often confused with academic freedom. And I do think that freedom of expression is one component of academic freedom. But it's not the it's not the only component. There are other other features as well. Uh, one feature can be the institutional freedom from interference without without the universities. That's not so much about just the expression of ideas, but things like who's going to teach and who's going to be taught. Decisions about admissions and appointments, those shouldn't be subject to state interference. Mm -hmm. What do you mean in the book by a culture of weaponized fragility? Well, this is a phenomenon, I think, which is not known only here. There's been lots of talk about this at universities around the world, although I suspect that it's much greater in many ways at uh, UCT and in South Africa more generally, uh, given some features that are unique to this country. But the general idea is that people um, make out as though they are victims, and then they use that so-called victim status as a cudgel in order to actually victimize uh, other people. And often the form of victimization of others is much more intense and much, uh, much more significant than the purported forms of victimization to which they claim they're being subjected. So we've had many examples of this uh, around the world, uh, but they, I think, particularly intense in, in South Africa because the group of people that is claiming to be the victims in post-apartheid South Africa is a majority, not a minority. Mm -hmm. um, so looking across the globe, and particularly in North America and the UK, for example, I've heard of many cases of um, professor, university professors getting, to use the term uh, people are using now, cancelled by uh, people that have a left-leaning orientation. Uh, how would you characterize politically this movement at UCT? Is it also coming from the left or from the right or somewhere in between? In between? Definitely from the left. Mm -hmm. Definitely from the left. And one of the things about South Africa is that there is no counterweight to that in the broader society. So in other countries, you will often have this repressive, regressive left, but there's a counterweight in the broader society. Now, let me clarify that I don't always think that the nature of that counterweight is appropriate. So mm -hmm. in the United States, for example, where you have uh, Republicans trying to clamp down on what books may be included in school libraries and included in the curriculum. I think these are just interferences with academic freedom and freedom of expression, and they're, they're an undue and inappropriate counterweight. But there is, at the national level, some counterweight. Here, there's none of that. The, the dominant uh, view is this regressive left view, 
And so when you get this problem with the university, it is reinforced uh, by the state, it's reinforced by the media, and so there's just almost no pushback against this. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think uh, academy reflects real, issue, real racial issues in South Africa that in this particular case might derive from the apartheid period? Well, if the evidence is anything to go by, it is not reflective of the broader society. So there was a very interesting study that I referred to in the book conducted by the Institute of Race Relations. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they found was that the vast majority of South Africans of all racial groups are not fixated on the things that academics and politicians are fixated on in South Africa. So if you, if you were to look at the discourse that goes on in UCT, you would assume that racism is a massive problem. Anti-black racism is a massive problem. But that's not the view that most South Africans have, at least according to this study that was done. So politicians, particularly from the left, are making those accusations. Academics are making those accusations. Ironically, in institutions that have been progressive uh, to a much greater extent than the broader society for decades, even before the, um, uh, before the demise of apartheid. And so I think they're out of step in a way with the rest of the country. But that's not to underestimate the influence that politicians and academics can have on national discourse and what they might do if the circumstances were, were right, as it were, for a conflagration. Mm -hmm. This might be a hard question to answer, but do you have any idea or any guess as to if uh, what motivates these people comes purely from ideology or if it also serves particular political and even in some cases perhaps personal interests? Yes, it is hard to know for sure because one has to sort of get into the minds of, of people. But if one tries to read their minds off their behavior and the circumstances in which they're behaving, then I do think that it is a, a conglomeration of features, including the sorts of ones that you've mentioned. So I think ideology does play a role. But I also think that when you've got a dominant narrative, then it's easy for people to fall into that narrative. So let's imagine you're having a difficult time and everybody's telling you how racist the institution is, well, you're going to be more likely, even if you're not ideologically driven, to attribute your hardships uh, to the purported racism of the institution, rather than to thinking that this may just be a feature of the world, that uh, life is tough and the world is a hard place and things don't always go one's way. And sometimes one has a measure of responsibility for that and sometimes one doesn't but that it's not going to be readily and shouldn't be readily, readily, be readily attributable to, to racism. But you're going to fall into that way of thinking. And then I think there are cases where it's just really expedient for somebody to do so. If you don't get your promotion or you don't uh, get admitted to, let's say, a postgraduate program or uh, you don't get what we call a DP, a duly performed certificate, if you can just blame that on racism, then you remove your own shortcomings from the equation, as it were, and you put the blame on somebody else. That can be very convenient. And when there's a great deal of susceptibility to those accusations, you could actually get your way if you level an accusation of that kind. And so they're going to be often be very powerful, personal, motivating reasons for why you would resort to those kinds of accusations and claims. Mm -hmm. Do you have affirmative action or something of the kind in South Africa? We have what's being called the most aggressive affirmative action program in the world, uh, both in terms of the, of the strength of the racial preferences, but also because they are in favor of the majority of the country, majority of people in the country. And so the result of that is a very, very aggressive uh, affirmative action a program, part of it legislated nationally, uh, and then also driven by other areas, like within the university. 
so when we speak about affirmative action here, people should not have in mind what's going on, let's say, in the United States or the United Kingdom or places of that kind. Um, we have affirmative action on steroids over here. The sorts of things that go on in South Africa would, many of them, be illegal under, under U.S. law. Some of them I even suspect are illegal under South African law, but they fly underneath the radar. Uh, and what are the specific groups favored and targeted by affirmative action? Well, it's primarily racial. So South Africa, it, during the apartheid era, had this four-part racial classification, which was uh, African black or black, sometimes these terms are used interchangeably or differently, colored, either Indian or Asian, and then white. And the bizarre thing in the post-apartheid period is that these categories have survived and that they continue to be used. But there is also some affirmative action on the basis of, uh, of sex. And one of the oddities is that at least in some circumstances, so-called white females are going to have the same advantage as uh, people who fall into the category of black or African. So you get those kinds of oddities. And then there's also some affirmative action for other groups like the disabled, but that's much less marked and noticeable. Mm -hmm. What are your general views about affirmative action uh, in terms of its uh, morality, for instance? I'm not sure I can do justice to my views in the short time we have available here, but let me say that there are some forms of affirmative action that I am entirely in favor of. Uh, I am in favor of rectifying injustice. So if there's somebody who has been dealt an unjust blow and we can rectify that, I think we need to do that. As that manifests, let's say, in the tertiary sector, tertiary education sector, I would say that let's imagine you've got two students, uh, one that comes from an impoverished school and one that comes from a very privileged school. And the student who comes from the impoverished school has slightly lower marks grades in the language of the United States uh, than the student who comes from the wealthier school, then I don't think we should just be looking at the fact that the one student has higher marks and the other one lower marks, because the student with the lower marks is working in an underprivileged, disadvantaged environment, and the results that that student achieved in that environment may well indicate as good, if not greater, ability than the student with the slightly higher marks from the privileged school. And so if you had a form of affirmative action that gave some advantage to people who are socioeconomically and educationally disadvantaged, then I would say that is not only appropriate, but actually desirable and, uh, and something that we should engage in. But that's not the way it works here. Uh, sometimes it's pretend, they pretend that there's an aspect of that going on, but what's really going on is privileging people on the basis primarily of their race. And what you get here is the oddity that uh, blacks, and I'm using all these racial categories in scare quotes, uh, that blacks who come from highly privileged backgrounds, parents who are professionals or politicians who've gone to good schools, are gaining advantage through affirmative action processes on the grounds of their race, even though they're not in fact disadvantaged. Now, that's just naked racial preference. There's not a rectification of injustice here. There's not a rectification of prior disadvantage. And I think that that kind of, uh, that kind of action is inappropriate. So that's a very brief kind of summary. Obviously, I've got much more to say about that, and I've said more in the book and elsewhere about it. Uh, so I'm not categorically opposed, but I am opposed to favoring merely on the basis of a person's race or their sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you think, I mean, as a philosopher, how do you look at the issue of race? Do you think that uh, it makes sense uh, socially, culturally, and morally to have that kind of categorization? I, I worry about th these concepts because I think they are inherently very dangerous ones. We've, we've seen how dangerous they've been in the past. And I think that they are dangerous for the future as well. So I understand that there may be circumstances in which people might want to self-identify in these ways. So for example, there are people who like to identify themselves as one or other racial group. And I don't want to 
deny somebody the right to identify in the way that they want to identify. If somebody says, look, I'm a colored and I uh, identify as such and I identify with the colored culture, that's their business. I, I don't think that we should second guess that and uh, and make that illegal or criticize it or condemn it or cancel them in any way for having those kinds of racial identities. But I do think it's very dangerous when the state wants to start using categories of that kind in order to apportion uh, benefits uh, or disadvantages, as the case may be. But again, let me emphasize uh, this is not an insensitivity to past injustice. I think that where we can rectify past injustice, we should, but that needs to be done not on the basis of people's race. That is too blunt an instrument for determining uh, who is and isn't disadvantaged. We need we need other markers of that, and I think there are other markers we could be using. Uh, could you tell us what could be some of those other markers? Yeah, I mean, if you're speaking about admissions to university, then the school that you went to. Uh, these schools can be can be graded, as it were, into various bands of privilege. And what you might do is have a formula whereby uh, marks that are lower from a less privileged school uh, get weighted up, as it were, that there'd be a weighting in favor of them. And uh, then you'll be giving some advantage. Now, now notice that the, the worst off people educationally are not people who are candidates for tertiary education, and they're not currently candidates for uh, for tertiary education. And one of the problems in South Africa is that the primary and secondary education has actually deteriorated in quality since the end of apartheid. I'm speaking about in the state schools, not the not the other schools, and, and more especially the underprivileged state schools. So the state has not been delivering here uh, in providing in providing education at the primary and the secondary level. Most as children don't finish uh, with a matriculation. Those that do don't get a, a university qualification, a university entry matriculation, so they, they're not eligible for entering into university. And there's really nothing that universities can do to rectify that injustice. That's an injustice upstream in the society and one which the society needs to fix. But the interesting thing is not only has it not fixed it, it's actually made it worse. Mm -hmm. So the things that have been happening at UCT Would you say that they fall under the rubric of what has been termed in other countries like the United States, cancel culture? Well, cancel culture, I think, is an element of, of what's happening more broadly. It's it's not just cancel culture. Uh, there are some people who have been canceled, uh, but there are many more people who would be canceled if they were to not be as compliant as they are. So one of the worries is that when you've got some examples of people being cancelled. And there are, beyond that, threats of uh, violence and intimidation. Then people begin to comply. And uh, th that, that too is worrying. There's a kind of chilling uh, effect, as it were, what's often called a chilling effect. Somebody's made an example of, and then a lot of other people learn a lesson about what to do and what not to do. Mm -hmm. So this movement seems, uh, and we've been talking about that here, uh, seems to be focused very much on race. But would you say that if, for example, or are there examples of this, if a black person holds the so-called wrong views, she will, uh, she will also be condemned for that? Absolutely. There's certainly examples of that. And That's why I've been at pains in many fora to say that I don't believe that this is a question of black and white, as it were. This is not a question of an interracial conflict. Uh, what this is, is an ideological conflict of some kind. Uh, and certainly people who are identified or who identify themselves as black have been on the receiving end of appalling treatment when they've either resisted the ideologically dominant view Uh, or where they've been insufficiently compliant with it. So um, at one of the meetings of the alumni, uh, there was an alumna who was uh, who was uh, referred to by uh, a, a racial epithet, and that's because she was espousing a liberal view rather than this kind of woke ideological view. Uh, there was a dean of health sciences who was insufficiently 
capitulating to the demands of the students in uh, his faculty, and he was hounded, um, called names, uh, treated in appalling ways, and eventually took his own life. Uh, so this is what I want to say is uh, it's a conflict between decency and indecency, between tolerance and intolerance. It's not, I think, a, a racial conflict, although those who are at the forefront of creating this toxic environment would very much like to dress it up in that way. There are also people who are pale, uh, have pale skins, who are ideologically conforming, uh, who are reinforcing the bad behavior and defending it. And they are very much part of the problem. Those would have been the ones that uh, the people that are part of the movement would call uh, allies, probably. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, how does identity politics, because this is an issue people have been talking a lot about for the past few years, uh, manifest in South Africa, if at all? Well, I think from my foregoing comments, it should be clear that it, it manifests very strongly. Uh, the sad thing is that these identities that were state-enforced during the apartheid era have really endured well into the post-apartheid uh, era. Now, it is true that at the state level, there is no enforced racial categorization. In other words, the state doesn't come in and racially uh, classify you. Uh, but what the state is doing is relying very heavily on ongoing self-identification, self self-classification. So it's actually, and it's actually encouraging that. And then there are cases where people are classified against their will, not through formal state structures, uh, but through informal social means. And so sometimes somebody, let's say with a paler skin, but a, a mixed racial background will be dismissed as a white, let's say in scare quotes. That's just the view of another white man, I'll say. Uh, when in fact this person historically would not have been classified in that way by the apartheid regime. And they can protest and they can say, look, that's not how I categorize myself. That's not how I view myself. But they will nonetheless uh, be uh, categorized by others in that way. So there'll be a kind of social effect Uh, through that, through that pressure and that force. Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe, maybe you've already touched on the main points of the question I'm about to ask you throughout our conversation. But in what ways would you say identity politics in South Africa uh, differs the most from what is identity politics in countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, and others? I think there's similarities and their differences. So the broad phenomenon is the same here as there. Uh, but given that one of the central identity characteristics is race, and given that uh, South Africa is a majority, a vastly majority uh, black country, you get a different dynamic here than you would in the in the United States. So there it's a minority claiming to be victimized and seeking benefits uh, on that basis. And I'm not I'm not saying that all of those claims are without merit, but in South Africa, political power lies in the hands of the black majority. And so you can't just import these ideas here and assume that they remain unchanged. When, when you've got that political power, and that could be used, let's say, to enhance um, primary and secondary education, to uh, bring social benefits to a broader class of people, and when your elected government doesn't do that, uh, it's very implausible to keep blaming this on what they call white minority capital or on whites, or on colonialism, or on the legacy of apartheid. I mean, I'm not denying that apartheid has a very strong legacy. It absolutely does. And uh, many of the injustices and inequalities that we see today are attributable to apartheid. But there's also got to be some personal responsibility when you assume power, and you have it for nearly 30 years. You can't think all the blame lies elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And talking about apartheid, Do you think that this issue that is now manifesting in academia and more specifically 
at UCT uh, was to be expected to happen in post-apartheid South Africa? Hard to know that. I think it did depend in part on on what would happen in the post-apartheid years. So I think that if things had got much better than they have in fact become, uh, then some of the impetus for this would have gone. But at the same time, as we've discussed earlier, some of the impetus is really just Machiavellian. It's a means of attaining goals you want to attain. And so there would nonetheless be incentives, I think, even if things had gone as well as they could have gone to to level complaints of this kind. Mm -hmm. And do you think perhaps this is sort of a variation of the question, but to be a little bit more specific, do you think that South Africa, because of its particular history with race and racial politics, is specially prone to this kind of problems? I do think so. And I think that's one of the legacies of apartheid, that when you racially classify people in the way that the apartheid regime did, uh, then you instill that kind of thinking in people. And it's a very hard thing to break. Uh, now, many opponents of apartheid, especially liberals during the apartheid, apartheid era, were wanting to resist these categorizations. And they still, in the post-apartheid period, want to resist these classifications. So the interesting thing is that the liberal view on this has not changed, but how liberals are viewed has changed. In, in the past, they were clearly seen as opponents of apartheid. Now they're dismissed as racists because they don't want to buy into the idea of these racial, racial classifications. Mm -hmm. So... Uh... One last question, perhaps topic. Do you think that there would be any way things like the ones happening now uh, at UCT could have any downstream positive effects whatsoever when it comes to social justice, for example? I don't think so. I mean, I, I'd be open to suggestions about w what that might be. Uh, but I'm, I'm I'm not convinced by that. I think that the, certainly the damage that's been done is much greater that, than any benefit that might uh, might result. And I am seeing an ongoing downward trajectory in in what's happening. Uh, I do not think that the future is going to uh, is going to be a good one. But I can't be certain either, and so I have to have to see how this unfolds. But if I were a betting person. Uh, I would not be betting favorably here. Mm -hmm. Do you think, uh, is it possible for you to look with some uh, level of optimism to all of this? Do you think that there might be a solution to this problem uh, anywhere in the near future? I don't think so. Uh, this is one of the very frustrating things is that the playbook that's being used here is one that if you know anything about history, uh, you will know does not lead to good places. And what I fear is that what's going on at places like UCT and in the country more generally is not auguring well for the country's future. And there are all kinds of manifestations of this. I've spoken about education and uh, the declining quality of that in the state sector. There's been massive corruption in South Africa uh, over the last uh, nearly 30 years. There was, of course, corruption before that as well. But in the post-apartheid area, we've not been relieved of that. Uh, the energy supplier is failing horribly. We have power outages that last for two and a half hours at a time, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, the country is failing in very manifest ways. And the terrible thing is I can see I could see this coming. I can see where it's heading. I can tell you what we need to do to avoid it, but no matter how much you talk about what needs to be done to avoid it, you're dismissed. And so I think the question now is for this to play out, and then we will be able to look in retrospect and see whether things become as bad as I fear they're going to become. So at least for the time being, you think that if anything things will get worse. That's my sense. Mm -hmm. Very well. 
So, Dr. Benatar, uh, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Your book is The Fall of the University of Cape Town, Africa's Leading University in Decline. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And just before we go, and also as a form of uh, thanks to you, let me just say that uh, I have a profound admiration for your, for, for your work. I think uh, you're one of the most courageous uh, people out there, intellectually speaking, and you're certainly one of the people I respect the most intellectually. So uh, thank you again so much for uh, giving me the time to talk with you again. Well, thank you very much for your very generous words. They're much appreciated and it's always good to speak to you. Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, all of those things you already know. And please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Dugny, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Eira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Lanonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidis, Aima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder. And my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.